so good to be with you on this Labor Day weekend and want to just welcome everybody gathered across all of our locations and those of you who are maybe joining us online worshiping the lake or at the lake, all right, uh, is what I mean. Totally joking. All right, that's a bad preacher joke. All right, so hey, uh, good to be with you guys today. If you got a Bible, go ahead and find uh, Daniel chapter six. That's where we're going to be. And uh, as you're turning there and kind of getting settled, just a couple things to uh, announce and uh, to kind of just give you a heads up on. Uh, first of all, if you've been with us during the series, we've been talking about our fall uh, rooted session and just encouraging you to sign up for that. You know, we could only host so many people um, in the fall semester of rooted depending upon how many facilitators we uh, recruited and trained up to, to lead the groups. And so we were honestly thinking, like we could only do maybe 700-ish or so people in it, but uh, our team was thinking that maybe we would only be able to do like, uh, we'd have four or 500 people sign up, but we had 715 people sign up across all campuses. So man, way to go. Super excited about that. Really encouraged by that number. And if you tried to get into a group, you couldn't, or maybe you couldn't swing it this fall, we're going to run that back in January. So just tuck that away as maybe something to do at the beginning of the year. Uh, what a great way to kick off a brand new year by jumping into a rooted group. Uh, second thing I want you to know is that we have our Among Lions uh, hoodies and t-shirts. I think we got hats coming as well that are going to be uh, coming. I think we got a picture of these. Uh, uh, this is going to be available next weekend, next weekend only in the lobbies of all of our campuses. Uh, they will not be available online, at least initially. And so if you want a hoodie or a t-shirt, uh, show up next weekend uh, to get those. Let me remind you why we do that. We don't do that, uh, you know, to be the cool church. We do that because hopefully over the course of this eight weeks, God said something and did something in your life. I want you to be reminded of that and I want you to share it. And so when you wear like a hoodie or a t-shirt and somebody goes, man, what's that all about? You've got an opportunity to actually talk to them about the book of Daniel, maybe what God did and uh, invite them to church. So come back next weekend uh, to get a hoodie or a t-shirt. But today we are in uh, Daniel chapter six, which if you've read ahead or you know the story, then you know that this is kind of the climax or the highlight reel of the book of Daniel because it contains the story that he is most often known for, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. And there, there's a reason for that. It's because it is a phenomenal story. But what I want to do today as we walk through this text is to see that it is certainly more than just a story. Now, for those of you that are that maybe like me, like you grew up in church, and I remember the Sunday school lessons and the vacation Bible school illustrations of Daniel and the lion's den. And somehow, like I, I didn't necessarily get the whole context of the story. We just kind of jumped into the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And so I, what I sort of took away as a kid was if I could remain faithful to God. And as a kid, I kind of interpreted that as keep my room clean, eat my veggies, try not to hit my sister very much. And if I could do that, <laughs> then God would come through for me. He'd deliver me, give me what I want. Or in the awful event that I accidentally fell into a lion's cage while visiting the zoo, God would protect me. All right, that's kind of what I took away from it. What I want us to see today, <laughs> there is a lot more to the story than that. All right, so if you've been tracking with us during this series, this is the last <coughs> of the fast-paced, action-packed sparring matches between Daniel and the Babylonian authorities. 
it is often where we stop studying or reading the book of Daniel as well. So we get to chapter 6, and then we kind of stop, because if you've ever read ahead, it gets kind of weird. And in fact, some of you have even come up to me, and you're like, hey, are we going to cover the weird chapters? That's like how you say it. And there's a reason why, like admittedly, it is a little strange, because uh, after chapter 6, we dive into sort of like a prophetic style of literature. It's often called apocalyptic literature, very similar to the book of Revelation, what that was written in. And uh, we are going to, the remaining three weeks of this series, we're going to cover chapters 7, 8, and 9. So we are going to venture into this. And hopefully, as we see, if we do our job right, we'll see that it's not as weird as we think. But uh, it does make a lot of rational sense. But remember that, I said this a few weeks ago, that the first chapter of Daniel and then the last chapters of Daniel, they are written in Hebrew, which is the language that they spoke in Israel. The middle chapters are written in Aramaic because that's the language that they spoke in Babylon, and it represents the years that Daniel is in exile in um, Babylon. And so in chapter 6, this is the last chapter written in Aramaic. It is Daniel's final demonstration and illustration for those of us who are seeking to live for God within a very godless culture. And it is like an epic story. If any of you saw Michael Jordan's The Last Dance documentary on Netflix, which I highly recommend, it was amazing. This is Daniel's last dance. This is Daniel coming out of retirement, putting on the jersey, lacing up the high tops, and he's going to tomahawk dunk on the Babylonian authorities. He is uh, not very many basketball fans. That's interesting. All right, so, <laughs> so he, is, he is well over uh, 80, 90 years old at this moment. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his close friends, they do not seem to be in the picture. We don't know where they are. Maybe they retired to the countryside. Maybe they passed away. We don't know, but they're not in the picture. The kingdom of Babylon had fallen. If you were here last week, when we got to the end of chapter 5, uh, we saw that uh, Belshazzar, like he throws this big party, and the Medes and the Persians are 50 miles away, ready to attack. They did, and they conquered Babylon. So when we get to chapter 6, we are in the Medo-Persian Empire with somebody brand new in office, a guy by the name of Darius. Now, Darius, uh, new face, new name, same heart. Like we see this kind of tug of war that's been going on between Nebuchadnezzar and God. And the same thing is going to carry over with Darius. Daniel, by this time, is one of the highest ranking government officials in the empire. He's come a long way. When we met Daniel, he was a 14 or 15 year old kid in exile. Now he's an 80 or 90 year old man. He is super powerful. He's come up through the ranks. Uh, What I want you to see about this is that Kings have come and gone. Administrations have changed, and yet Daniel has remained the same. His character and his competency have set him apart. And by this time in his life, Daniel has no scandals. He's got no corruption. He's got no accusations made against him, which is amazing. After six decades of public service. And as a result, Darius keeps Daniel on the royal payroll. And what we see go down in chapter 6, I, I want you to see this. this. This is the sermon, what I'm getting ready to say next. This is, Daniel in the lion's den is a result of years and years of faithful service. It wasn't that Daniel just stumbled into this. Daniel didn't just all of a sudden rise to the occasion in the face of adversity. 
This shows us that Daniel has been putting in the work day after day in those like sort of what we might call normal, mundane, routine experiences of the day. And what I want you to know is that it is never too late in your life or in mine, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going through right now, to begin building in daily rhythms into your day that foster emotional and spiritual strength and resolve in the face of adversity. I think sometimes we maybe kind of wonder, at least this is true for me, it's like, well, you know, I wonder how I'd react or I wonder how I would respond in the face of some big challenge, crisis, or adversity. And I'm not going to just like wait to know how I might respond. I want to begin building in these daily rhythms that foster this sort of strength in advance. And what we know to be true physically, I think all of us know that we would, like it would not be wise for us to say, you know what, I think I'm going to run a marathon, 26.2 miles tomorrow. And I don't think that we, we all know that's not very wise. You got to begin training, building up to that. Uh, but we oftentimes, what we know physically, we forget spiritually and emotionally that we need to begin building in these rhythms into our day so that when we find ourselves in a pit among lions, whatever that looks like for you, some sort of trial, challenge, adversity, crisis, or temptation. And by the way, it's coming. If, it ha if you haven't faced this in your life yet, you one day will. It is not a matter of if, it is simply a matter of when. And the question is, is will I be ready. I've heard it explained this way, that you know uh, how you, uh, you know, when you type in uh, something in the Google search engine and it will finish the statement before you're finished searching based upon previous search history. So you start a sentence like, let's just say you're searching for back to school clothes and it autofills Backstreet Boys, right? Or is that just me? Is that, is that my, my thing? And uh, this, the same thing, so it autofills based upon previous experiences and patterns. The same thing is true when it comes to how you respond to adversity, challenges, and pain. When you find yourself in that moment, your heart autofills the response based upon the patterns that you've previously established. So let me give you this definition of spiritual and emotional maturity. It is not a result of a decision that you make in a moment. It is the result of habits you've been developing over time. So how do you build a wall? Uh, well, brick by brick. How do you run a marathon? Step by step. How do you build character that can handle adversity? Daily decision after daily decision. So what we read in Daniel chapter 6 is the result of this. So I want to pick it up in verse 3. It says this, Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. This is nothing new. He's been doing this since he was a teenager. And because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. What's truly impressive about this promotion that Daniel receives as an 80 or 90 year old man is that he does this as a 80 or 90 year old man. Like he hasn't retired, he hasn't checked out, like he's still in it, like he is still staying sharp, he's still working on himself. You know, whenever I meet uh, an older, wiser, um, more seasoned person, let's just say over the age of 65 or so, who is joyful, thoughtful, humble, teachable, encouraging, and kind. 
I think two things. Number one, I think I want to be them when I grow up. The second thing that I think is so, that is evidence that they have so clearly done a lot of heart work. You remember the iceberg analogy we gave a couple weeks ago? They've been doing heart work in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. That has set this time up, the, the twilight, the season of their life, to be some of the most fruitful, joyful, kind experiences in their life. And in, Daniel's clearly been doing this. And in verse 4, we meet a group of people who have not been doing this. Look at verse 4. It says, then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs. They were jealous of him. They didn't like him. They were threatened by him. And so uh, they said, man, we got to find some sort of dirt on this guy to cancel him. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. That's an amazing statement. Daniel is close to 90, six years of public service. They couldn't find anything anything to criticize and condemn. And it says that he was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So these guys come together. They don't like the power and the authority that Daniel has. And so they say, we've got to find some sort of dirt on this guy. We got to find some skeletons in his closet. So they hire a private investigator and they're like, man, find out if Daniel said anything carelessly at a party 30 years ago. Search his Twitter feed to see if he ever posted 140 characters that was maybe hateful and bigoted. Uh, interview old college classmates, um, roommates, or former employees to find out if he has ever used plastic straws or taken candy away from babies. We got to find out if this guy has done anything wrong to cancel him. And they search and they search and they search. They cannot find a single thing on him. And that is just incredibly impressive in and of itself. And in verse 5, it says, they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. In other words, they said, we are not going to find anything on this guy character-wise. So let's go after his convictions. Like, would that be true of any one of us? I, I don't know that that would certainly be true of me. I don't know that my character is that spotless that people will go, well, we just have to go after his convictions. They said, let's go after his convictions. Let's put pressure on him there and let's squeeze. And so verse six, it says, so the administrators and our officers went to the king and said, long live King Darius. I want you to remember that phrase because it's going to become pertinent as we study this uh, in just a minute. And it is so clear that these guys are trying to butter him up. And they say, we are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue a sign, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. Now you got to hand it to these guys. This was a brilliant move on their part. They are, what they're doing is they're trying to exploit Daniel's faith and they're trying to leverage Darius's ego. And so what, what just happened here? Well, they come to the king and they introduce a law that wasn't meant to be permanent, just 30 days. That's brilliant. Because what they're doing is that they're playing off of the king's ego and his paranoia. 
And I said this a few weeks ago in relation to Nebuchadnezzar, is that kings were paranoid. They were always looking because somebody was trying to take their throne. And they come to Darius and they're like, hey, for the next 30 days, if anybody prays to anyone other than you, we can throw them into this lion's den. So king, this is going to show you who's loyal to you and who isn't. That's brilliant. And the Medes and the Persians had established that once a law was passed and sort of signed off on, that it could not be changed for any reason. Now, the reason why was to keep mood swinging, emotionally unstable, inebriated kings from making arbitrary laws without fully thinking it through, which they did all the time. So a king would go out, let's just say he went out for a jog and he twisted his ankle wearing Nikes. And he would say, I outlaw all Nike shoes because that's why I twisted my ankle. Or he goes out and he eats a cheeseburger and he finds a hair in it. And he says, I'm going to outlaw all cheeseburgers. Well, they would make rules like that based upon personal experiences and emotions. And then when the emotion of the moment sort of subsided and they calmed down, they'd realize that they made a mistake. So the Medes and the Persians put this rule into place to keep them from doing that, as well as to reinforce the power of the king. Because to change a law meant that you had to confess that you made a mistake. And kings didn't like admitting that they made mistakes ever. So Darius sort of plays into this big time. And to get him to do this, and keep in mind, Darius really liked Daniel a lot. And so now he has put Daniel in this difficult position. And Daniel is faced with a decision that every single one of us, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to have to face this at some time in your life. When I am in this position, when I'm in this uh, adversarial position, will I choose to cave in and give in? Or will I choose to stand on my convictions? And how will I do so? Now, if you wait till you're in that moment before you begin developing the spiritual muscles to do that, you won't be ready. You will either cave or you will come across in this sort of like uh, adversarial combative way that we've been talking about that defames the name of Jesus and is actually the exact opposite of the gospel. So you got to begin to think through like, what, what am I going to do in those moments when I'm the only Christian in the classroom or the office and I'm mocked for my faith. What am I going to do? What's my disposition? What am I going to say? How am I going to stand? When you're pressured to have sex with the guy or the girl that you just met on the dating app, what are you going to do in that moment? When you're asked to lie to cover somebody at work, how will you respond? If you wait to just think, well, I think I'll rise to the occasion in that moment rather than preparing yourself each and every moment, you won't be ready. So it says in verse 10, here's how Daniel responded to this. When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, so there's no going back on this. Here's what he does. He went home and he knelt down. Now notice these next two words, as usual. This was no different of a day for Daniel. He prayed in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem, which is where he's from. He prayed three times a day, once again, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. So when this document gets signed into law in the Oval Office, Daniel would have been standing right there 
with everybody else on the payroll. And when the press are taking pictures and interviewing the staff, what's going on in the back of Daniel's mind is, uh, okay, how am I going to respond to this? Because he realizes this is a personal attack on him. This is designed to trap him. And Daniel in that moment could have responded in a variety of ways. I just want you to ask, I just want to ask yourself right now, uh, as you read this story, as you listen to what's going on, place yourself in the narrative. Find yourself in Daniel's sandals, so to speak, and just think, okay, what would I do? Would I just kind of like pray silently to myself and and hope that nobody notices, you know? Would I, would I just try to escape away and make sure that uh, I'm kind of behind closed doors and just try to keep this private? Or would I rise up and get angry? You know, Daniel doesn't lawyer up in this moment. Daniel doesn't get angry and turn over tables and flip everybody double birds on the way out the door. He doesn't do that. Here's what Daniel does. He goes to his house, but he opens the windows. They can see in. Like he opens, he's not hiding anything. He just opens the windows and he prays. And what I really want you to notice just as he had always done. This was no different of a day. Daniel didn't break routine for this or any other. Um, he, didn't, he didn't break routine because he found himself in this moment of adversity. Daniel was unshaken, and I love that. The second thing I want you to notice is that it said he prayed, not asking God to get him out of it. And I got to be honest, man. If I was Daniel, that was the first thing I would say. God, like, we got a big issue here. God, would you please get me out of this? Would you please protect me? But instead, it says that Daniel did what? He gave thanks. Like, he expressed his gratitude to God. And you got to sit there and think, well, what could he have given thanks for? It's like, thank you, God, that the lions are going to get their share of protein today. You know, it's like, no, it's, he's, he's thanking God. And this shows us that there is no moment of trial, temptation, or adversity in which we cannot express gratitude before he begins to ask God to come through for him. And so a significant tell, I think, in all of our lives is our immediate emotional response in the midst of adversity. That will show you not only who you really are, that'll show you where you've been investing your time. So when it comes to like daily rhythms, when we talk about like the Christian life and those of you that have been tracking for a while, following Jesus, you've heard all this before. It's like whether it's early morning, midday, late at night, you know, whatever it is, like that time, like your quiet time, whatever that looks like for you, daily Bible reading, prayer, journaling, those spiritual practices and disciplines. I think that it's easy at times to either do those things and to get maybe somewhat um, arrogant about it and you start comparing like, you know, your quiet time to other people's or whatever, or you begin to feel really ashamed because, you know, you mean well, you start off, but then it trails off and you don't, you're not doing it with any regular um, a routine. And I want you to know that we do those things certainly not because those things make you a Christian. You can't make yourself a Christian. That's a finished work that Jesus did on your behalf on a cross, right? He walked out of a grave so you wouldn't have to, all right? So, so he did all that stuff on our behalf. No, we incorporate those things into our life not to be a better Christian or even a growing Christian, certainly not to compare our faith to others. You know, God's not up, you know, in heaven saying, well, you know, let's give them a gold star. That's not why we do those things. I want you to begin thinking of those things like gym sessions for your soul. Adversity is coming. Challenge is coming. And in that moment, will you be ready to face it with the kind of resolve that Daniel faced it? 
I've got a really good friend who's an executive pastor at a church in another state. I was recently having breakfast with him and he said, uh, he told me that he's recently begun changing the way that he interviews potential people to hire on staff. And I said, well, tell me about that. And he said, well, one of the questions that I ask, usually kind of towards the end, is I just ask them to explain uh, the greatest crisis that they've ever experienced in their life and how they handled it. And he said, if they're married, what I like to do is I just say, uh, uh, tell me about the biggest fight that you and your spouse got into. And he said, the way that they choose to answer that question tells me a lot about their honesty, their willingness to get vulnerable and how they handle it. And he said, so for example, if I ask them that question and they say, well, uh, you know, if they just choose to kind of phone it in, you know, they're like, well, you know, last big fight, uh, you know, we were on vacation in Tahiti, which right there, that automatically tells you something, right? And, uh, and they're like, you know, we got into an argument over sunscreen. And she wanted to use SPF 15 because she's, you know, careless. And I wanted to use SPF 100 because I'm careful that way. And boy, we got into a real pickle over that one. But then we went on a walk and we kissed and made up. And then we had margaritas later that night with a little salt rim. And he goes, if they give that kind of a response, I'm not hiring them. <laughs> He's like, for all kinds of reasons. But the one is like, are you willing to get honest in that moment about uh, some of the greatest moments of adversity and crisis and challenge in your life? It's a big tell how you face it as to whether or not you've been incorporating those daily practices into your life. So can I just ask you today, what's your autofill response to crisis? Just like that Google search. When you face it coming, do you, do you get angry? Do you get jaded? Do, do you start worrying? Do you panic? Or does your resolve look anything at all like Daniel's? Well, of course, if these guys are going to spend all this time rigging this up, they're going to follow through. So check it out in verse 11. When the officials went together to Daniel's house, so clearly they're trying to catch him in this, and they did. They found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about the law. Then they told the king, that man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Now hearing this, the king was deeply troubled. Because he knew what he had done here. He knew what this meant for Daniel. And he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. And he spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. But he can't and he knows it. So at last, verse 16, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. I just want to point this out that the king thought or that they thought the most, uh, the, the most difficult thing that they could do to Daniel in this moment was to lock him into a room full of cats, which is just evidence that cats are demon animals, all right? And, <laughs> and I had to throw that in there because it's been a while since I've given you cat lovers a hard time. And I, I only give people a hard time that I love. And I know that actually I've made cat jokes in the past and many of you email me, write me letters. You tell me you've been praying for me. And I just want you to know that um, it must be working because uh, the week of Christmas last year, a little kitten showed up on our front doorstep and we, we brought that little kitten into our house. Not because I like cats, but because I love my daughters. And, uh, and he's black, his name's Onyx. And I have to say, after nine months, I'm a cat person. I really like this cat. I really do. I like this cat. So... Your prayers are powerful and effective, and you're shaming, by the way. It's just very powerful and effective. 
And uh, the only reason why I like this cat is because he acts like a dog. All right, so that's the only reason. <laughs> the king said to him, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. A pagan king is saying this to Daniel. Verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. Does that remind you of anything? Has to do with Easter? The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Like the guy's not getting a wink of sleep. Very early the next morning, verse 19, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions. Now check out Daniel's response in verse 21. He says, long live the king. Remember who else said that? Yeah, all the administrators and the officials that were trying to trap him. It's as if Daniel is taunting. He is talking some serious trash and I love it so much. Verse 22, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so they would not hurt me for I have been found innocent in his sight and I have not wronged you, your majesty. So Daniel makes it through the whole night in a den among lions. I've often heard it said that almost nobody got any sleep that night. Like the schemers were up celebrating. Darius was up worrying. Daniel's friends were up praying. The angels were up protecting. Ironically, Daniel's the only one that gets a good night's sleep. <laughs> and in verse 23, it says, the king was overjoyed and he ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him for he had trusted in his God. And... This is like where you just wish the story would have stopped right there. Like you're just like, oh, okay, man, chapter six, we'd stop right there. We'd go right into chapter seven. That would be amazing, but it does not. And I thought about saying, well, we're about out of time. <laughs> and, and I knew that though you would read ahead because the very next verse, honestly, is uh, uh, quite frankly, very disturbing and it's pretty brutal. And I, I, I need to speak to it. I, I wouldn't be doing a very good job if I didn't. All right, so let me go ahead and, and read it. And just, just a heads up, it's, it's hard to read. Um, but I want to explain it. So it says in verse 24, Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. And he had them thrown into the lion's den. Here's the disturbing part. Along with their wives and children. And it says, the lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. So let me make an observation, then let me offer an explanation. The observation is you cannot say that the reason why Daniel was spared in the lion's den was because the lions weren't hungry, right? So they were clearly starving. So we see that as an observation. Now, the next part is really, really brutal. And maybe you read this and it sort of triggers this sort of emotional response within you where you're like, this is the problem I have with the Old Testament. I just don't understand why God would allow this. So uh, let me just say that what we just read was a very common practice in the ancient Near East that if anyone made a false accusation against somebody else, then, and it was proven that it was a false accusation, then they themselves would be punished by receiving the same fate sought for the victim. And we actually see that um, this happened rampantly throughout pagan empires, that, um, um, that you would see people make uh, false accusations. Why the women and the children? 
Well, that's a good question. I don't know that I have the full answer to that, but I will say this. Sin, pride, and rebellion always affects innocent people. Your sin and mine always gets on other people that didn't have anything to do with it. Here's the thing that I want you to hear. Just because this is in the narrative does not mean that God is condoning it. The Bible isn't condoning this behavior. It is simply telling us that it happened within a very pagan empire. It is not, it is describing what happened when sin, pride, and rebellion reign. It is not prescribing that that's what God wants. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, God speaks out very clearly against this type of behavior because it happened all the time. Innocent people would be taken because of very pagan kings in their paranoia. And so there would be kings that would wipe out whole families, uh, young children of their enemies, because they didn't want these kids to grow up and go all Jason born on them later. And so they would wipe them out. And God speaks very clearly against this. Well, then to, as we finish out the chapter, it says, King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. It's pretty impressive. This chapter starts off with a prohibition on prayer and it ends with the king declaring that God loves the nations, will endure forever, and he rescues and saves, even though maybe not in ways that we always want him to or anticipate. Not a bad little sermon. And what, what convinced him of this was Daniel's ability to trust God when he found himself in a pit among lions. So here's where I just want to land the plane. I just want to ask you to chew on these few things and apply them to your own lives. And here's the first one is um, before we find ourselves in a moment of adversity, we need to decide ahead of time who we're going to be. And this is that moment right now. Like I just want to decide ahead of time before I find myself in crisis, trial, or temptation, who am I going to be in that moment? And then you got to ask yourself, am I developing the daily routines and practices to reinforce that? So um, when you're faced with trial and temptation, you don't get sweep, swept at the leg. And Daniel didn't all of a sudden just rise to the occasion and muster up the courage to go face to face with a group of hungry lions. This was the result of decades of faithfulness in his life. And if you wait until you're in a pit among lions to decide how you're going to respond, you will not be ready. And so that is why, young people, if you wait until college to figure out what you're going to believe and how you're going to live, you will not be ready when everyone around you isn't making wise decisions and you're away from your family. If you wait for the resolve to withstand temptation when you're on the road, in the hotel room, or on the couch all alone, you will not be ready. If you wait to stand on your convictions when the people around you are telling you that you're crazy, you won't be ready. Don't wait for the moment. Develop each and every moment to facilitate who am I going to be. Here's the second uh, thought is you need to develop the spiritual rhythms that help you build grit, right? And I've already alluded to this is that I want to call it just like spiritual rhythms of your day. 
And so uh, what are the daily practices that I'm going to do to build intimacy with God, to build up my character and my resolve so that when I find myself in adversity, I, I can stand. And a couple of these things that I would just mention is um, uh, don't underestimate just the gathering of people, like what we're doing right now. And I want to be very clear about what we're doing right now and what we are not. Uh, what we are not doing right now, hopefully, is that uh, you didn't just gather in, into the room that you're sitting in today to watch professional Christians sing and teach on stage while you watch. Now, there's an element of that. But what this is meant to do is this is meant to be mutual encouragement because I don't know about you, uh, but Monday through Saturday, we can kind of get worn down. I mean, I actually had a pretty good week this last week, but I was still a little bit tired. And I was looking forward to this gathering where we could fill each other up and to mutually encourage each other so that we could go back out and live faithfully the next Monday through Saturday. And so when you come in here, this is not just you coming in to receive something. Now, I hope you do. I really hope you receive something, but it can't just end there. And the analogy that I've often used is that in order to kickstart your spiritual metabolism and to really begin to grow as a follower is you can't just come and feed. You also have to come and serve. So it's this idea of every weekend when we gather, come figuratively speaking with your spiritual bib on ready to eat, right? You've got your Bible, maybe something to write with, like you're ready to go. I cannot guarantee that every message will be a good message, but I can guarantee that I put in the work. So hopefully God will feed you through this because we're just gonna go through his word, teach it, explain it and illustrate and apply it. And I want you to be able to receive something. Then I want you to be able to put on a spiritual apron and go surf. And what happens is if you're just always eating all the time, but you're never exercising, or if you're exercising all the time, but never eating, then um, you're, you're not going to be healthy. The same thing is true spiritually. And that's why we just encourage you, man, come and serve an hour and worship an hour. And uh, if you ever find yourself in this moment where you're like, I just don't feel like I'm getting anything out of this anymore, um, begin to serve. And you begin to take your eyes off of yourself and you begin to serve other people. Can I just like... Um, share with you, even from my own life, this is even true for me through weekly preaching. Uh, people uh, often ask me, hey, do you still get nervous preaching? And I just want to say every single time, every single time I get nervous. And most of the time when I get overly nervous, there's, a, there's what's happening in my soul is that I want, I'm trying too hard to do good. Like, I want to do a really, really good job. Like, I want you to laugh in all the right places. And I want you to say amen in all the right places. And I want you to clap in all the right places. And I want you to go, man, this is like really, really good. And so I, I get overly nervous about that. O oftentimes when I step up here to swing for the fences, that's usually when I foul it off. But uh, what I've learned is if I can take a deep breath, calm down and pray, usually I find myself doing this in the worship over here where I say, hey, hey God, I'm not so concerned about how well I do. I know that there's somebody here today who needs to be encouraged and actually somebody's eternity is on the balance. Thank you for this opportunity to just be a spokesperson. And so can I just come up and can I just encourage and can I forget about, can I forget about trying to impress you with what I know and how to deliver it and to actually say, how can I encourage you to take your next steps? It almost always feels better. The same thing is true with you. Like if you're just constantly coming to church, like what am I gonna get out of this? What am I gonna get out of this? What am I gonna get out of this? Am I gonna like that song? Am I gonna enjoy this sermon? Uh, then it's gonna fall stale. But if you find yourself coming in saying, who can I encourage? 
Like, who can I serve? There's something to that. I want you to begin to develop those rhythms into your life. Here's the third thing. This goes along with it. Is determined to be available, to be used by God in every age and stage of your life. What I love about Daniel is that Daniel served God faithfully as a 14 or 15 year old kid. And he served God faithfully as an 85 or 90 year old man. Nothing changes. And there is never a season or a time in your life when you are too young or too old to be used of God. And I want us to be a multi-generational church. Multi-generational does not mean, well, we got a little something for everybody. You know, you got your preferences over here and your preferences. That's not what it means. What it means is every generation stepping up, being used of God to serve each other. And I want to show you just a real quick video of one of our student leaders and uh, share just a glimpse into his story. So be encouraged by this. In sixth grade, I just felt that it was time to get baptized, make my faith my own, start my own journey. I felt called to start serving in kids' ministry. I was a seventh grader leading first graders. Trying to understand how the kids worked, like how their little minds just going everywhere. It was a really fun experience just being able to mentor them. And now they're in sixth grade. So I've been able to have a lot of close relationships with the students. Sometimes you don't know how serving is gonna play out, like if you're actually impacting the students' lives. But very recently, I was able to baptize one of the students. His name was Craig, and he was one of the students that I've had for a long time. Over time, he's just made his faith his own. Understanding that all the time that you've spent with the kids, it's, it's worth something. I mean, that's kingdom work. That's basically what we're called to do. The current series that the main church is on, as well as kids' ministry, is the story of Daniel and how he's been consistent in his faith, and that's the biggest thing for me right now. Going into college is figuring out where I fit in, continuing to have my faith. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm hopeful that God's going to use me in some way to serve other people whether that's encouraging people every day, having my door open to talk to people. If you're considering serving, go for it. Whether that's serving in kids' ministry, whether that's greeting people at doors, helping out in any way that you can. There's so many different ways that you can serve and help other people. God calls us to do that, and that's an important piece of everyone's faith. Hey, man, give it up for Ryan. Appreciate that. You know, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, um, I recently read about all these different perspectives that people often share whenever they um, found somebody who fell into a a pit. And uh, when this guy falls into a pit, it said that there was a subjective person who kind of came along, sees him, and he goes, man, I really feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, you know, well, it's logical. It's just a matter of time. You were going to fall down in a pit. Philosophical person came along and said, you only think that you're in that pit. 
A Pharisee came along and said, only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician came along and calculated how he fell into a pit. A news reporter came along and wanted an exclusive story on his experience in the pit. A charismatic came along and said, just declare that you're not in a pit. A realist came along and said, now that's a pit. A geologist came along and told him to appreciate the rocks data in his pit. An IRS agent came along and asked if he was paying taxes on the pit. The county inspector came and asked if he had a permit to dig that pit. A passive person came along and avoided the subject altogether. A self-pitying person came along and said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. An optimist came along and said, well, that pit could be worse. A pessimist came along and said, uh, a pit could always be worse. And Jesus, seeing the man in the pit, reached down, grabbed him by the hand, lifted him out of the pit. See, I've been saying this throughout the series, that the book of Daniel has Daniel's name on it, but it is not about Daniel. It is a foreshadowing of Jesus. You see, just like Daniel, men conspired against Jesus because of who he is. And just like Daniel, traps were set for Jesus. Just like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused by his enemies. Just like Daniel, Jesus was brought in front of a ruler, Pontius Pilate, who tried to free him, but he couldn't. Just like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die a very violent death. Just like Daniel, Jesus was put in a cave that was sealed so that no human could intervene. And just like Daniel, Jesus walked out of a cave alive. The only difference between Jesus and Daniel is that Daniel didn't die. Jesus did. And he did so on your behalf and on mine. Jesus experienced the threat of death and he experienced a brutal death because he knew that there was no way. You and I didn't have deep enough pockets to pay off the debt that we owed. And so he did it on our behalf. And Daniel is a picture of us. That because of our sin, which is our guilt before God, we are condemned to a final judgment of death. But because of Jesus, he paid the price and he set us free. Jesus is a better Daniel in every way. And so today, as we sort of wrap up this time together, I, wanted you, I want you just to take a few moments to reflect like right where you are. I can't imagine that every point in this message applied to you equally. It doesn't have to. What is the one thing that God is saying to you today? What's the one thing you needed to hear? What's the one thing you've been running from? What's the one thing that spoke so clearly to the stage of life that you're in right now? And I want you just to spend a few moments thinking, praying, reflecting. And uh, after I give you a few moments, we're gonna take communion together. I'm gonna lead us through this. So hopefully on your way in, you were able to grab uh, the little communion cup. But just take a few moments to pray, to reflect, and then I'll lead us in communion as we close. before Jesus' crucifixion, he took the disciples into a room and he broke some bread. And he said, hey, this bread symbolizes my body broken for you on a cross. So as often as you do this, 
remember. So let's take the bread together. And then he poured some wine and he said, the wine symbolizes the blood that I shed for you that covers over your sin and your transgressions to make you holy and spotless before God. And so as often as you do this, remember, let's take the juice together. Lord God, I ask that you would receive us right now where we are and as we are, but that we would allow the power of your presence to change that, to make a change to who we are and where we are. So Father, I thank you for your grace, but by the grace of God, none of us stands a chance, but by the grace of God, None of us has the ability to face our lions. But today, we want to follow the example of Daniel. We want to express our gratitude. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done. If you never did another thing for us, you've already done more than enough. So God, I just ask that you would change us from the inside out. What we see modeled for us, what we see happening in the world isn't working. And we need men and women We'll be humble, fully surrendered, empty-handed before you, that you might use us. God, give us the strength not to wait for the moment to show up, but to take advantage of each and every moment to begin to develop and foster these spiritual muscles that will make us unflappable in the face of any sort of adversity, trial, or crisis. Thank you for making the way for us in that. We ask this in a spirit of gratitude, and everybody says.